I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The U.S. Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Earn great pay with outstanding federal benefits and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives. Learn more online at cbp.gov slash career slash USBP. When you save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot, you'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA SafePilot. Restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill, or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Neville Keeley, Balooey Sum, welcome. I, actually, you just mentioned it, this email that you sent me, and I was thinking earlier, I, I knew I'd met you, and I'm actually getting closer to where we must have met, because you mentioned Mark Booth, who was the managing director of MTV, who was a good friend of yours, and Christiana Backer, who was one of the presenters. All of you. I knew all of you really well, but I had hair. And, <laughs> and, and, um, and, you know, it's very different when you're 30 years on or 40 years on and you've got no hair. So, uh, I mean, you look still similar. I can look completely different. So, um It'll come back to you in a minute. But Mark Booth was one of my, he still is one of my best mates. I'm godfather to his children. And he, right at the beginning, I remember coming out to your Camden place all the time um, and going out in those days with Christiana and Mark, you know, four nights a week. So um, I, I remember we'd met loads, all those wonderful parties. That's what I was going to say, because I knew yeah. MTV had yeah. some brilliant parties, didn't it, at the yeah, beginning? The best, amazing. Yes. I know, they were completely wild. So and if you remember, one of those. Steve Fagnoli as well was around, um, Prince's manager. He was in our gang and we used to go out and I, you were there. I remember there was one over in um, West, Westwood, Westwood Studios and there was one. Anyway, we don't want to hear about the parties, but we know each other. <laughs> we do. We do. So listen, um, we're born in the same year as well. So we have ah. we have this sort of growing up in Britain 
yeah. in common. You're from South London. I'm from yeah. Chelmsford, which is uh, yeah. northeast of London. Um, but, you know, London, the centre of London would have been, you know, the attraction for us yeah. uh, when we were young. But I want to talk about the earlier times and just ask you, what sort of music did your parents listen to and when did your tastes diverge? Well, funny enough, my, my, there was there was no music really in my house. My, my mother brought us up and she wasn't really very musical. But um, but I went to boarding school where there was every kind of music and all the big boys and um uh, it, it was a mixed boarding school, but I remember the guy, everyone was into music because in those days, as you know, there was nothing else. I mean, it was music or nothing. And um, so you have a, quite a di diverse taste, a lot of heavy rock and, and everyone had, you know, there, were, there was there was one guy I remember um, who was expelled for plugging his electric guitar into the chapel sound system in the middle of the night and the whole area listening to this blasting no so it was pretty it was pretty full-on music uh, but i was um you know i mean 71 72 david bowie was my thing and then all the roxy music and everything but of course i loved there was so much of it you know if you think jethro tull even the heavier stuff the original genesis the um you know i mean everything there was so much music wasn't there um I, i'll come to the the music in a second but i just want to ask you because i know that my both my brothers were were sent to boarding school one wanted to go the other one was a sort of rebellious had yeah. masses of fights in school and yeah. I think my mum just wanted Actually to get both. somewhere else yeah. what, did you feel actually that your parents had pushed you away because I've I've read a lot about young people when they go to boarding school it sort of breaks the umbilical cord to the parents There's earlier no, it, than later oh it definitely does that it definitely once you send your kids to boarding school they've got another agenda i mean even now i i see it with my friends who send their kids to boarding school you are making a decision um and the kids are going to still love you and they're still going to come home all the time because in those days we didn't come home all the time but there you are making a decision and school becomes their life sorry anyone listening who is thinking about i mean i I haven't sent mine to boarding school, but I don't need to, you know, so, um, but you're absolutely right. Also, parenting is different. I mean, you, you're, you know, you, you're a parent, yeah. you've got two young girls, I think. Yeah. And um, parenting is much different. Back then, I think parenting didn't really exist as a term, did it? You know, my no. father <laughs> didn't know what school I went to. I mean, I really, he didn't really have any contact to my father at all. Yeah. And it was quite a sort of odd thing yeah. today to think that that would happen. Were your parents very involved in your my life? My mother was. My, fa my father wasn't. He, you know, he left when I, we, we, I was three and my my brother was a baby but um so it was my brother my mother brought us up and we were it's quite a lot for her to bring up two boys i mean remember boys are always fighting and in the 70s they were difficult <laughs> so um i was sent to boarding school my brother went got a scholarship to um Alain's in south london he was super clever so um uh he went on and did great academic things and i just was on the rampage from the age of 10. now Thinking about it, 10's very young, but I didn't think I was young at 10. I thought I had it under control. So, um, you know, probably I wouldn't send a kid to school at 10, but I went, you know, I loved it. You, you mentioned um, Bowie and getting into Bowie, which is something that we, you know, of, I'm going to say of our age, but it's actually yeah. across his generations, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But definitely of our age, that Bowie was the phenomena. And for me, he represented, you know, like Bowie was the alien, the other, and he yeah. sort of represented my route out of the yes. life that I was in. Yeah. What was he yeah. for you? Well, the same, because it's the first thing you hear. You see, if you think about it, we're the same age. So about 12, suddenly you hear, and you're aware of music. I mean, I was, you know, and... The first thing I heard was David Bowie. I mean, Starman. I mean, there are other things around me because the older kids, but this just jumped out. I remember Starman on the radio and thinking, this is just the most incredible thing I've ever heard. I mean, or been a part of, and it, it makes you dream and it makes you go off and, and be in another world. And so um, then I was, I was hooked. I had to, you know, eventually write songs and whatever. But you're absolutely right. But Bowie was a very special time. And if you go back to kids a bit older than us, theirs was heavy rock, you know, and, you know, it's the thing that sparked you, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And also, I mean, with Bowie, I mean, I remember I can, you know, recite practically all the lyrics about the yeah, first five I can albums. Everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> did I, you I, also look at who were making the records at that point? Or did of course that I did. Later? Yeah, so yeah, of course I did. Well, of course I did. I knew everything about everyone. And... um 
And that's why when I finally got to New York and started finally making my album properly again, remaking it from the first time, um, you know, I knew every, I knew these people's inside leg measurement um, that because they, so um, yes, I did because it was so important. I wanted to know how he made his records and, and where he made them and what was influencing. I wanted to know everything. And like you, I knew every lyric up until Let's Dance. And then after Let's Dance, I think that, um, well, by that stage, I'd sort of met him at, well, I had met him and I was working with the people that he had been working with. So I don't, you know, I wasn't so interested in the, the next albums. It was, a, you know, I had my own path, you know. Now, was it Bowie that sort of inspired you to, to pick up a guitar and, and write songs or to just, you know, just to sort of get into music at an early age? Um, I, do you, I mean, I don't say it was actually Bowie. I mean, I, I learned the guitar with... Um, uh, it was a route, it was an escape, I'm not, I don't want to escape route, I, I mean, I wasn't going to do anything academic, I wanted to be the actual, I wanted to be in show business, and I had a Beatles songbook, and I learned the guitar with the Beatles songbook, and I recommend that to any kid who wants to learn the guitar, get the Beatles, you know, songbook, and that'll teach you easily how to learn the guitar. Uh, you don't need to be clever, you know. And um, so I started with that. And um, I wasn't so interested in playing David Bowie's songs because I didn't want to copy David Bowie. Um, I wanted it to be my own thing, you know. I didn't. I was never interested in being a clone of anyone, really, you know, if, if that, that makes sense. Yeah. I, when you were 18, you left school. And that must have been something like 77. That's sort of the early... Yeah, it was... Um, yeah, 77, 78, I think, end of 70. Well, did um, yeah, you also leave home at that point? No, no, I never saw the point. I didn't have any money. I mean, the thing, the thing is, um, um, I lived in South London anyway. So, um, no, I didn't leave home until I was, you know, much later because um, I then, you know, eventually started travelling and playing and touring and things like that. And my poor mother, you know. I always remember my mother gave up smoking and drinking uh, the, the month I left home, which I always thought was... And I and I didn't realize until about a year later. I was, he wasn't smoking, wasn't drinking. I was like, what the hell? And uh, yes, I think that's probably quite telling, isn't it? Um, so um, no, I didn't leave home. No, I didn't, had no money. And of course, I left school, you know, armed with a load of songs. I, by this stage, I was going to record companies and A and R men with my guitar. I couldn't afford demos, and um, it was it wasn't working. So it took another two or three years afterwards before anyone started to listen seriously to me. Um, and uh, no, I had no money, and it was it was really hard actually because everyone writes you off. But that mm -hmm. era is a very interesting era because the late seventies and we go yeah. in and, and the early eighties. Yeah, we're yeah. going from an era which had okay, we had like the three day week where we had yeah. no power in the mid seventies. I think that was or seventy three, yeah. seventy five, and then a bit later, there's there's you know mass unemployment. Yeah. Uh, there's then racism. There's misogyny, yeah. homophobia, you know, I mean, it has the whole works, but there is also <laughs> yeah. this yeah. group uh, of subculture, which yeah. in a way went round all those things. Were you yeah. in that sort of No, no, I was really bad at it. I mean, I was, um, it's sort of like, I was aware of it. I mean, um, I was... I was, a, you know, I was a painter and decorator. I was a landscape gardener, a minicab driver, all just to make enough money to rehearse the band or to do the demo. Um, I wasn't a passionate, sorry, Paul Weller, uh, you know, or, or whatever. I wasn't ang angry. I had my own agenda. Uh, I sort of skirted around it, like you said. I mean, and I didn't, I mean, I wasn't from Birmingham, so I didn't dress up as a new romantic. I wasn't um, no, I, I remember, I didn't know, <laughs> no, I just carried on. Solo artist called Neville Keithley writing nice songs, which of course is doomed, you know, absolutely doomed. You're never going to get anywhere, you know. So when you're saying you're writing nice songs, what when you went to the record companies, I mean, this is quite a long period, wasn't it? A period of about four yeah. years where you're really yeah, trying, yeah. To, trying to make yeah. it. I just wondered what you learned in that period and what you learned yeah. from rejection. Well, I, it toughened me up, you know. I mean, when I left school, I thought it would be a, six months and I'd have a record deal, you know. And of course, it was if you know my first record came out when I about five years later. But but um, it toughened me up. It it made made me go home and learn my skill. I had no choice. I mean, you sit there uh, and you write from eight in the morning until you know one in the morning, and you you know because I I was living at home. I was under a lot of pressure. You know, no money. Blah 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 blah. Odd jobs. Um, 
And uh, so I, I tried to get my skill, sort my skill, learn songs. So I'd go to see publishers. They say, yeah, much better, Neville. <sighs> you know, what are you talking about? And then I go home and get another appointment six months later with another one. It, it was soul destroying, but I was luckily, I was young and so stupid. I had no idea how tough it was, you know? What, what did you specifically learn then? You said it hardened you up, but what did these rejections well, I, and also what you were doing, what did you really learn for life, do you think? Well, you, you know, the thing is, the first thing is, it's really important, the, the innocence of youth. I mean, ignorance, innocence, I don't know what it was. I mean, I sat there and I went home, right, okay, what's Bruce Springsteen done? Well, he's written a song like that. So I'd write a Bruce Springsteen song. And what's Elton John done? So I'd write an Elton John song. I mean, I wrote and wrote and wrote. And that is the key to everything. It's the more you write, the better you get. And there's no way around that. Don't think about productions and don't, I never thought about productions or anything. I just thought, does the song work? Does it flow? It's all about the song. And I wrote them all on acoustic guitar. So they had to work because the melodies, if they weren't strong, they wouldn't stand out. And um, so, you know, imagination I wrote when I was 19, uh, you know, um, you know, it didn't come out until I was 24, 25. So that gives you, you know, gives you an idea. So um, yeah, and I, it's just about working. You can't do it on a Mac. I had a, I worked with a management company about 20 years ago and, and you know, they'd get oh, DVDs, uh, CDs would come in and, you know, I wrote this song last week and I know it's a hit, you know, really? Because, it doesn't work like that, does it? What about Lose It To You? Because that was the first song you recorded, I think, which is actually, I've just watched it the, the, this morning on, on um, YouTube. You can, there's a, your, the records on there and you can- I haven't, uh, I haven't heard song. it, All I right. heard it for 40 years. No, I, 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 the only reason I know about it is because someone added it to my Wikipedia about six months ago. Uh, I must listen to it. I, I'm sorry, it sounds pretty horrible, doesn't it? I, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I don't think so at all. I mean, I think it's identifiable, but it's not completely, it's not, I mean, I know it's under the name Neville Rowe, but it's yeah. not the Louis Sum, as, you know, yeah. we would get to know yeah. the Louis Sum, but it's definitely on the way. And I, I just wonder, because oh. even with that, you know, you worked with uh, people yes. who were, oh, of, yeah. I would say, Oh, yeah, um, Roland and Kurt. Maybe not at the yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, Roland and Kurt. Well, so they weren't at my leave at the time. They were in graduate and they were, and they, you know, and, and they were with the same publishing company of mine and they, was, they were groveling around like me. I mean, graduate, they had a couple of singles, I think, on Polydor. Um, I mean, I mean, I don't want to offend any graduate fans. It, it certainly wasn't Tears for Fears, you know. Um, but uh, Manny was a great drummer and Roland and Kurt were great. Um, and they had a stu the thing is I got I got an it Darren Hatch helped me produce it or produced it and he had a connection in Bath they were because they were all from Bath you see so we went trundling off to Bath I've completely forgotten all this by the way and uh, and um, David Lord produced it with Darren and um, all the musos were down they all played on it I think they played on the demo for Imagination as well later on but I'm you know it's all I switched off to music remember for thirty years so it's all. I mean they were all musicians who were on the up. Um, yes. You know, well, they so, weren't on the up then. They weren't tears uh, for fears then. Oh, I'm sorry to dampen your enthusiasm. They were like me, groveling around with great, great ideals, all thinking they were going to change the world, to coin a phrase. And, um, but we hadn't actually got to that stage yet. So what you were know? your expectations but, at the time? Change the world like them. But I mean, and of course, and you have this incredible confidence that, you know, you really are, this is it, this is it, lose it to you was it, you know, and I probably felt I was more up than them at the time, because I was recording a single, and they weren't, so, um, but they were great guys, and I still see um, Kurt, well, once at Blue Moon, and um, uh, Darren, and yeah, it was all part of the process. Yeah, talking about that process, because to be honest, I mean, the chorus in that is brilliant. I mean, I, I actually I really liked it. So I hope that this is, you know, <laughs> I heard it this morning. And I, I think it's because I had a different expectation because I thought, okay, this must be like the first attempt and it's the one where he's going, yeah. oh God, I don't, you know, this isn't what I yeah. want to do or want to be. But actually you can really feel that there's I'm very flat the chorus is really I'm good. I'm very flat. Thank you. I'm going to have a listen. But the thing is that, um, yeah, but realistically, I wouldn't have had, Roland, Kurt, Manny, Darren, David Lord had done the Corgis and um, and had worked a lot with, um, you know, um, uh, you know, Genesis, um, <laughs> Peter Gabriel. Peter Gabriel. Um, 
So um, I was working with good people. So um, I'm assuming, I'm assuming that they lifted my song to their level. Yeah, I'm also assuming that they also <laughs> saw something in you, whether whether you, you um, say it today or not. <laughs> they obviously saw something in you, otherwise they wouldn't have bothered. I mean, people, you know, yeah, people don't no, bother I, when they yeah. don't believe in something at all. So I, I don't think they were paid. They weren't paid. So, I mean, they didn't have any money. So um, they must have done it for the right reasons. Yeah. When that record um, came out, what did you learn from it about your style, your look, the way you performed, the way you sung, that you could change? Well, I don't think that I deliberately, I think I was back to writing. And the, but the good thing was that it, I think that, I, like you just said, I think other people um, started doing demos with me and getting me studio time and... I was starting to move to the next level of um, people taking me a bit more seriously. I mean, I still looked like Neville Keithley, Neville Rowe. I still had curly, you know, normal hair and I wasn't a rock and roll star, but I was, you know, I was, I was completely unstoppable. You know, nothing would stop me. I would do anything to get to the next level. And so if there was an opportunity, I would take it. And this would probably leading towards my the big moment when, I mean, I had another single out, I think called Wartime that no one ever heard. Um, but then um, Steve Elson, who was a good songwriter, is a great songwriter, Paul Harrison, the keyboard player from the Corgis, and started doing demos with these guys. And at the same time as um, I, I thought, if you want me to carry on talking, I'll tell you what happened. Um, um, I, um, I had an aunt who lived in a cottage in the middle of nowhere in North Wales, who was, bless her, she was a bit of an alcoholic. And so I'd go up there and do some work on her house occasionally. She was a, a fantastic, very eccentric lady. And we, my brother and I would go up there and she, yes, basically she, you know, bunged us some money to do painting and, you know, she had some cash and whatever. And one day she said, well, you're pretty useless at doing what you're doing because you've been doing it for three years and nothing's happened. What do you need? And I said, well, I'm a solo artist. I need a band. Well, how much does a band cost? I said, I don't want to be in a band because I had auditioned loads of bands and they'd always gone wrong. So I said, well, I've got to pay them for the rehearsal time. I've got to pay them. And she wrote a check for like 500 pounds, which was a fortune in those days. You know, I was like, you could buy a car, go on holiday for three months and, you know, do up the house on that, couldn't you? But it was a fortune. So and then, you know, at a later stage, she bung me some more money. So I came back to London. I knew what to do, put my band together and went out to try and get gigs. And, um, and um, the band sounded amazing. The songs had been honed. You say, lose it to you. This is a couple of years on. So you're talking about a lot of the songs that are on the first album. Um, they, they, were, they, were, they were played out rehearsed every day for, for a month with this young band. The band looked amazing. Um, and I had a whole load of gigs lined up. And the first problem was, the big problem was, I didn't have a name. So this is, brings me to the blurry something. I was still Neville Keithley and everyone was like, you can't be Neville Keithley. It's a ridiculous name. Solo artist doesn't work. Um, you can't, you're not a band, so you've got to come up with a name, Neville Rowe, you know. So, well, I thought, you know, and, and it was just, I was two weeks away from the first gig, you know, and in the embassy club. And, and um, so it was the Bluey something band, but I never got, the Kins, the Blues Brothers was out and the Kinsman song, Louie Louie was in it. And I mean, you know, we were, we were, I was clawing every direction and uh, it, it was Bluey song. That's the name. That's what happened. There's nothing... You know, the other the divine moment was I went on stage with my hair like this and froze at the first gig, which was at a place called Monkbridge in German Street. And so afterwards, everyone said, you know, that was terrible. You're terrible on stage. You've got no stagecraft. You're the worst. You've got to do something. And um, wait a minute. Who said that to you? with the whole everyone i mean most of the audience were friends this is the worst gig we've ever been to you're just i just stood there i froze so um so at the same time as blade runner had just come out and you know it's very striking is now it's common last but you know those days to have white hair was really strange so i had a girlfriend and she she knew a hairdresser and 
I sat there for eight hours while they dyed my hair white. You know, it went yellow, it went green. Eventually it came out white. My eyebrows, everything. And I went home and, you know, people don't recognize you. You looked, I mean, just imagine there's no one with white hair in those days. I mean, Billy Idol had a sort of, but he wasn't really, you know, he was an American. He wasn't, I mean, it wasn't really in my, our zone. So I had, so I had white hair, a new name and um, two or three shots of vodka. And I went on stage as Bullowy Sum, and that was it. And then, you know. Who approached who with the, with the Barrow brothers, the ones that were looking after Duran Duran? Did you approach them or they approached you? But at this stage, things are starting to sort of be a bit more, the, people are starting to be a bit more interesting. But the, 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 the great thing was that the Embassy Club, we had the first gig and <clears throat> my manager at the time lived opposite a school somewhere in Hertfordshire. And um he was chummy with, he was, we were all much younger, and he was chummy with the six formers, and he he rented a coach and uh, put a couple of cases of beer on the coach. And um, so for the first gig at the Embassy Club, there was a big bundle of kids outside. There was a crowd. So the record companies that we'd managed to get along, including, um, I think, um, the guy who worked for the Barrow Brothers, not the actual Barrow Brothers at that stage, um, uh, where they couldn't get into the gig. You know, we had to, someone had to go out and get them in because there were so many people at the, you know, there were, there was a hundred kids there at the Embassy Club, only took 200 or something ridiculous. So, um, so there was a perception that it was time, you know, it was my window to get a record deal. And there were a couple of A&R men there, you know, some love it, some hate it. Um, but I was off and running. And then, you know, within sort of six or seven months, and then the Barrows were like, Ooh, what's this? They came down and they liked the songs. And that was the next level, you know, next stage. What did they the promise project. you? Um, well, they were very, very powerful at the time. I mean, they were managing Duran Duran. And, and to anyone who's listening to this, Duran Duran were the biggest band in the world. You know, they had number one albums in America, UK, all around the world. They were, they were on their right at the top of their they were on their way right up and um uh there was a tour coming up the following year and their idea was to you know put me on support for the tour in the states um but it didn't happen because my record wasn't ready my record turned out my first attempt at the album was a disaster um for lots of different reasons um so it wasn't ready so it didn't happen but um they were very supportive. I mean, they were really supportive because they were song people. So Paul and Michael, they weren't interested in it. They were just like, get the songs right. You know, they That's were very really fascinating because, you know, target practice that came out wasn't really, yeah. you know, wasn't a success yeah. initially. Yeah. Um, you weren't happy with no. the recordings that you were doing. Yeah. And I just wondered if you went through a phase of thinking, God, I've, you know, I've invested such a long period of my life, yeah. 500 quid from my aunt wasted. <laughs> <laughs> and here I yeah. am and it's not happening. So what? Yeah, well, I was in trouble. I was in trouble. And and basically the manager had to go because he was a madman, bless him. I mean, you know, he, his, his intentions had been fantastic, but it wasn't working. I was spent a fortune with EMI, with Parlophone, great Dave Ambrose, A&R man, they were so supportive, EMI were always fantastic, right, and the Barrows, and then I thought, right, I've got to do something, I'm on my last, so uh, uh, what had happened is that this, this version of the Target Practice you heard had been mixed by Michael Barbiero and Steve Thompson in New York, and I'd gone over there and I said, look, I'm in real trouble. This my, my arm's not worked. It's, I've spent 10 years getting here. It's rubbish. It's, it's not what I wanted. Um, and they said, well, I know what we could do. This is how it should sound. This is, and it was just amazing. Suddenly I was with people who were positive and I, and I said, well, I've got to persuade EMI. So um, I came back to London and that's when I put my persuading cap on to persuade Dave Ambrose to let me go to New York and... Um, and record a song, a single, and that it was imagination, but but that persuasion then was money. You wanted, you had to get money out of them, or did well, you it was always about the budget. I mean, at it this stage, a... you know, like, they spent half a million by this stage on the album. It was rubbish. I mean, I mean, it, it was just not going anywhere. I mean, bits of it I've salvaged in the end and went back with Steve and Michael. We, we, you know, some people had been no, some people I did myself. No, okay, yeah. So, um, so what happened was, um, Dave was like, all right. Okay, but make sure it's a hit. 
So I said, of course, it's going to be a hit, Dave. And I always remember the great thing, fax machines. This is a little story. It's absolutely true. In those days, fax machines were new. And I remember that Steve and um, I said, we've got to make it special, Steve, because, um, you know, we need we need an angle. So he said, well, I've met Carlos Alamo and he really wants to work on some stuff we're doing. And I said, OK, great, Carlos, I'm my hero. But David's uh, Bowie's uh, guitarist and um, and dream guy and um and carla said well i've never worked with bernard edwards and tony thompson of course i've known niall for years but they're in town and they would like to do something we've never done something together we've known each other all our lives right and so from chic um so they said i'll get carlos i'll get niall and bernard and tony and i came back to london and said listen i've got they were chic were pretty big you know I mean, uh, and Tony and uh, Tom and, uh, you know, they were pretty big at the time. And Carlos, so Dave said, all right, we'll make sure it's a hit. Send, send the budget over. And I always remember the facts came through. This is the funny bit of the story. The facts came through and it was $34,000. It came through to the publishers. So I remember tipexing out a, a zero, whacking it off to EMI, all blurred. Do you remember faxes were blurred? $3,400. He said, fantastic. And it's good value too. So I, I got on the plane, went to New York. Did imagination and walk away in, in on a Saturday afternoon. Live vocals. Got on the plane Sunday evening. Came back to EMI Monday morning. Said, "There's you." But what a process! It had taken a long time. What's um, amazing to me is uh, well, a number of things here. I want to start yeah. with Carlos because Carlos Alomar was he, his riff was fame, wasn't it? As well, he was yeah, he, yeah, he on yeah. more Bowie. Uh, I mean, all the way through here, yeah. here, and you think, I mean, with Robert Fripp, with Heroes, everything. I mean, Carlos is there all the way through from, from Young Americans all the way through. Which is, you know, and the connections, the sort of Bowie connection with you is sort of amazing because it's like, you know, there's the childhood um, yeah. idol is Bowie and then you're connecting again later on. And one thing that's really interesting there is that the idea that record companies at that point, still had money, didn't they? They still yeah. Oh, they were a fortune. They were making fortunes. So, so the the, the, the thing was, I, I was talking to someone the other day. Um, you probably remember this. Um, basically, they they bargained. They, I mean, it was about hundred grand a single. I mean, it, a hit single. You know, I mean, I mean, you didn't spend a hundred, but you went in. It, it cost studios were between twelve and fifteen hundred quid a day. Now, you know, it's fifty quid and a packet of crisps, isn't it? I mean, it's just a different world. Uh, yeah, you're right. They had a fortune, but I didn't chase David Bowie's people. It's just that they were they were an incredible musical. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Entity, you know, and um, but and, and if I can just throw in, because I'm talking, 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 but um, um, it wasn't well received that I'd gone to New York. It was, you know, but you're English. What are you doing in New York? You know, you should be making English records for English people. And I was... Um, and in they're they're so much more positive. They were so much more positive in New York. You know, I'd gone from all this negative, 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 everything going wrong, to wow, this is fantastic. Let's do this. Let's do that. And you know that that was something that stayed with me for the rest of the, the rest of my career. You know, that New York. One thing you know, I loved was your, your drive. I mean, it's everything you talk about shows immense drive in your life, like the commitment and drive of yeah. taking risks and doing thing is it seems to be there all the way along have you ever sort of sat back and 
and and analyzed or even you know I've been to therapy a lot and I've sort of seen where my drive came from and it's actually you know we sort of identified it was that my father didn't show much interest in me so I've sort of been trying to get his attention is the idea in my life that's where we honed it down to have you you ever looked at something like that in terms of your own drive and where it may have came from well I never thought about my father because he he was never around and and frankly he seemed like a bit of a prat I mean I didn't meet him a couple of times later on when he was older but then by that stage I was a a pop star and um I really I really wasn't interested I had no like oh my god my father no I was um always driven, always having, but it's not a good idea to turn around and analyze too much what you're doing. Or, I mean, if I'd analyzed where I was going, what am I doing? I mean, I'm like, my God, I mean, I mean, crazy, headstrong, do every, you know what I mean? Um, but you can do that when you're young, can't you? You can, you can attack the world, you know? You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Some people was, uh, the the result of this was then um, some people and um, this album, um, which then you came back with. And how did the record company react to the product that you actually presented them with? They loved it. They loved it. I mean, the thing is. I was really lucky that EMI were very supportive. Polyphone EMI were very supportive. And they loved the album. The big problem that they had was, and this is what we first started off when we were talking, is everything in the 70s and 80s was categorised. You were a new romantic. You were a rock band. You were, I wasn't anything. I was a, a guy, um, a pretty middle-class guy who wasn't political with white hair, who was English, who'd made a record in New York. And, it, and, it, and, and the marketing people at EMI had an appallingly bad time trying to get it across i mean you know there's no question that imagination survived and some people have both survived 40 years but at the time it was like well what's this you know i remember radio one capital would never play imagination cap huh who's he think he is making a record with the chic people huh i mean that was the direct on monday morning he's like well who's he think he is you know there was there was that rubbish so um they all imagination and some people were both re-released and it was Gary Davis who got Imagination away because he was playing on Radio One. Here we are. We've got a song called Imagination by a guy called Baloui Sum. Have a list. Oh, he said. And halfway at the end, he said, that's good. I'll play it again. And he played it twice. And oh, that's wow. what broke Imagination. So, um, so uh, yeah. That's they, fascinating because you're talking about radio there. And radio how one. radio had such an impact at that oh, moment, yeah, in, yeah. during that era. And yeah. we're already in the 80s in America, we're in the MTV era. Yeah, um, where- It was vital to me, you know, so. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was one of the the most interesting choices uh, was when you came to make a video for Imagination. And yeah. Storm Thorgerson. So was that your decision or did that well, come from the record company? My manager by this stage, one, I had an American manager and I had Bill Kerbishley in, in England, but my manager, they were all very close to MTV and the Barrows were very close to MTV. So I sort of did my naughty version of Imagination, which is the, which is the video. I went to Storm, uh, Paul, Barrows, uh, Paul Barrows' idea, I think, but we went to Storm, who was a genius, you know, um, a nutty, but a genius. And um, so we want to do a, a seven, a 12 inch version. Um, and this is what we want, the concept. And we're not stupid. I mean, we had MTV in the States involved the whole way through. They did a special, um, a special on a video that they couldn't show. That's the irony. Um, and um, so they were involved right from the beginning. And I, um, um, and they, they we did a launch of the actual with MTV. So MTV News in New York, when in the States was at the launch of the video that they couldn't show. <laughs> so, um, because no one had really done that before. Um, and the reason was, it was to programming. I knew that, if you remember, Steve, every club and bar in the world had these big screens that would come down. It was a no-brainer. If you wanted to be shown all night, every night, in every bar in the world, do something that was a bit risky. So that's what we did. No, I remember that. I remember when seeing um, uh, Michael Jackson's Billie Jean in a club in London, yeah. in a gay club in London, yeah. where they brought yeah. down the screens at midnight and showed yeah. this video and, and it's, they did it with Thriller and we just stood there and watched it yeah. like it was completely normal. And you're sort of like, 
wow i mean and the thing is so uh, so i so that's what happened and of course you know it it completely it, you know is a massive dance hit all over the world and uh, you know still meanwhile you've got um radio going well <laughs> who does he think he is because you know it wasn't broken by radio imagination you know and it, and of course all the europeans picked up on it long before england um and uh, so yeah that's what we did with the video and then storm did some people with storm which was also a, as you know a commercial in the states um but um, that was just a... going back to the other one, because you said, oh. you know, it was shown. It was wasn't it shown in Studio 54 as the first? Yeah, we, the launch was Studio 54. And the, and the thing about Studio 54, you know, it was it was still happening, Studio 54, but it wasn't like the days of, you know, everyone crawling around in, in, in the basement doing whatever. Um, but it was still a, a good place to grab some attention. And so the, I wasn't at the launch, but, um, you know, MTV and everyone and all the record companies and. And it was a great place to launch it. And and I just I just I'd forgotten that, you see, until fairly recently as well. But but um, it was all part of the whole the whole risque thing. And then and then. Um, but I, I just I should say from the first minute I started doing this, I knew that America, sorry, UK was far more important. So I so I would always. What, what about the Americans? I mean, I would you know, I knew that capital in L.A. was more important than you know, I, okay, I was a London-based act, and I love London, but I knew that you had to get American. I mean, you so, mentioned uh, the, the the Barrow Brothers, the, the importance of their role in it, because they'd they'd already had girls on film, hadn't they, with Duran Duran, yeah. I presume. Well, that, and they, that's, that was the forerunner, in essence, to the idea. Absolutely, that's what Mike Paul said. It's been really, it's, it's shown in every club in the world. It's about, you know, so, so let's do the same with you, with imagination, because imagination worked like that. And Storm was the perfect director for that because he was a genius, but barking mad, you know, and, um, and I had no idea really what was going on most of the time. I mean, I, you know, I had loads of meetings and, and I got a feeling that we, we actually got some money out of Playboy for that video. Um, it's come, it was, I was thinking about it the other day, I think Playboy put up like $50,000 as well um, so that they could show it exclusively at late night so um i mean we would take money from anyone you know, we're not proud i mean <laughs> so uh so um yeah it was an event and of course it it gave me a calling card you know the imagination video it was so weirdly i was talking to a friend from mtv the other day because of you know interviewing you and i said to him didn't we go around storm thorgerson's and he said yeah i think you did an interview with him so did uh, he live he lived in north london or in, in yeah that's right he had a barking mad studio up there with Kentish town or something it was yeah, like, that's right. yeah. yeah no i did interview him no and he was absolutely nuts but very <laughs> yeah. very clever and you know his work is fascinating his genius nuts. I mean, he, um, he, you know, every sleeve of note and art camp, art uh, campaign, you know, Pink Floyd, uh, Led Zeppelin, everything is Storm. If you look at his, what he did, um, I loved him. I thought he was great. And he was, but he was, um, you know, the record companies hated him. You know, he was like, no, I'm not doing that. No, you piss off. You're not coming to the set. You know, I mean, he was ruthless and, and um, he was incredibly rude to everyone. But, um, but he was a, a fantastic guy. I liked him a lot. Did you have a say in anything that was going on then? Or was Everything. he actually just ordering you around? <laughs> no, but, I mean, there, there was an element of that. But, it, you know, I mean, you have to imagine that I've got to this stage. I'm not going to let it go. I mean, I always had a say in everything. That's why maybe it hadn't gone according to plan a lot of the time. But uh, no, I mean, I did. I, I knew what the basic, you know, concept of the video was. It was some of the things he made me do were a bit embarrassing. Like I, it was quite a big film set. And it was a Monday morning we started shooting. It was a long shoot, like four or five days. I said, right, get your clothes off then. I said, what? I said, you know, he said, well, get your he said you don't think that they're going to walk around naked and you're not. And I'm looking around at all these people and it's my first really big shoot. And I, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm freaking out. Anyway, I did, what, I did what I was told. I got in the shower. <laughs> so um, if you remember the, video, the opening scene is I'm standing in the shower. Well, I'm, I'm looking terrified, you know. Well, I think you're looking away, actually. I'm looking, I, am looking, but I have to look away for obvious reasons, Steve. From behind, yes. <laughs> yes. Thank God, yes. Yeah. Oh, dear. But, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I, th I think those those um, times in your life are sort of very um, yeah. pivotal, and you, you may not even realise it at the time. Did you know you were at a pivotal moment 
Oh, yes. I knew every time, even though every day, I mean, I never took a minute off, you know, I mean, I, I was completely, I was on the phone, I had a big bag of coins and everywhere I drove in London, in London, in those days, you drove everywhere, I'd stop and there would be a payphone, I'd be on the phone to America with my coins, you know, uh, oh, I'll be, I'll be, I'll call you back in 10 minutes, then I'd drive another, you know, round, because you could drive around and um, every moment was pivotal, I knew I had one chance. Um, and um and everything went really, really well. I mean, you know, on that album and then then, then Queen with uh, Freddie Mercury get doing, you know, um, when Freddie asked me to do the tour, obviously by this stage, EMI are really taking me seriously. And then... Um, how, did he, then how did he approach um, you? Well, the, I had approached Queen, the band, not Freddie, at a, a manager director's conference. They were in a special VIP part of the hotel and I was about 11 o'clock at night and I said to the girl from the record company a friend of mine she was fantastic I said we've got to find I've got to get on this tour they just there was talk of a tour I said I've got to make friends with them so anyway I was barged into their room and I always remember telling Roger and um, John uh, listen you need some young blood on your tour you know if you do it and they were we had a drink it was a laugh but how I got the tour was Montreux um, and um, there was a big tv festival and it was 86 and Everyone and their auntie was there and uh, Queen were about to launch the Magic Tour, which in those days was the biggest thing ever. It was a stadium tour. It hadn't happened before. And uh, I got summoned at the party afterwards. Uh, the managing director of EMI came down and said, Peter James came down and said, Freddie wants to meet you. And so I was taken upstairs and then Freddie was like, this is the only star of the show. You, the rest of them are all average. You are the one. This is the one doing my tour. And the managing director is like, Freddie, we can't afford it. We can't. Don't be ridiculous, darling. Spend the money. So I got the tour. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, but when you, you know, when you actually went on tour with them, you'd already had this massive preparation because you, you, you know, you played small clubs at the beginning. You'd had a real band. Um, yeah. Um, were you perceived as a, um, a live act? Live act, or were you perceived as a video act? Because in a way, yeah. you crossed that boundary of both, didn't you? I think I was different from most of them because most '80s acts were video acts. They weren't live acts, if you think, except for the big ones like Duran and, and Tears and whatever. And but um, I was very definitely a live act. I mean, I was on the road. I was touring, playing all the time. I, it was really important to me because I knew you couldn't crack America unless you were playing the whole time. So um, um, uh, if you look now at a lot of the 80s acts, the great bands, ABCs and Heaven 70s and everything, they weren't playing live in the 80s. I mean, they were making great videos and amazing records, but they weren't. So I was, yeah, I was out there. I was playing. Um, and I loved it actually. That was the bit I really enjoyed. So, um, so yeah, I was. Um, I had a band that I, you know, a great band. I mean, they were fantastic. So, for me, it was easy to slot in. I was playing all the way through the summer anyway. And so, when when we, Queen gave me those dates, you know, it was it was easy. Was that around the time you were also touring with Frankie Goes to Hollywood? No, I, that was a year before. That was ah, that was so what that was that's, in the States. That's, to me, that sounds like a. Um, a marriage made in hell to the extent of that would have been wild. It was very wild. It was very wild. And and also, um, I, you know, I'm perceived by everyone. In those days, I was perceived as being quite posh. And um, I and and they were, you know, hooligans. I mean, you know, um, um, Holly is obviously now, a, a, you know, a, a lovely guy. And he was always a slightly more genteel than the rest of them. But the rest of them were animals. And... Um, and I always remember the first few dates, like my band could outdrink their them anyway. So that was that was the first thing. So we weren't wimps, and um, and I just think that uh, we were we, we I'd been in America a lot, so there was a lot of MTV buzz around me. So they were like, well, who is this guy? He you know they were they they didn't dive in and start. They they'd done a tour before where they'd been really badly behaved, and no one would do press with them on this tour. So I got all the press. So, um, so it worked for me really well. So whenever we turned up in a town, I would do everything. Um, they were they were very big by this stage. I mean, people don't have any concept of how big Frankie Goes to Hollywood were. I mean, Relax and Two Tribes, as you remember, a phenomenal, you know, 
but they were really phenomenal. Um, so uh, I, I grabbed their press. We got on really well. They also had them. a, you know, when you think of Relax, they had that first, you know, band video as well. I was actually, yeah. there's, a, yeah. there's this girl with really long blonde hair behind the bar, yeah. Ange, who was a mate of mine. And, oh, right. and she's in that and she's in that video that was sort of her claim to fame at the time um and they also you know i don't want to say used it because uh, that sounds like well they got their record deal on that didn't they yeah they I did mean, yeah and it was you know and that video is incredible because it is like pushing the the yeah 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 and then yeah. they had then they had to remake the video didn't they with sort of these yeah. strobe lights or whatever they're called and then, that original is just phenomenal it's yeah, no, it, no, it's absolutely brilliant. How did it feel in in that period to, to you about where you were going to end up? Well, at that stage, I was convinced and everything was going very well. And then and I went to New York to do my second album and I had a live band that consisted of Carlos Alamo, Carmine Rojas on bass, Jeff Dugmore, uh, Guy Fletcher, you know, from Dire Straits, um, Chester Kamen. I was going to use the Borneo horns for brass, uh, Robin Clark and goodness knows who else on backing vocals. I had a, I had the most amazing lineup and we recorded the album and that was it. And it was, we, we came back to London, the record company were thrilled and I was thrilled and we we're ready to go. And then, then it all started to go horribly, horribly wrong. Did the first video, um, tour dates were all organized, America's organized, Europe's organized, and then it went wrong. And what happened? What, you want to know yeah, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> it's really straightforward. I mean, everything slotted in. Radio One's playing it. It's climbing the charts. The record's released. And it, it, it's all to do with logistics in those days. There were rules about you could only release a couple of weeks before to radio before it went out on sale. And if you remember, it's just before you... Well, it's, it's the MTV time. It's the same time as I met Mark. He became, you know, we became chums. Um, and... Um, the record's due to be released on Monday, the whatever, and it wasn't in the stores. So Radio One pulled it. So um, it's suddenly all airplay stops. The single's dead. The Europeans are going, hang on, wait a minute. It's not a hit in the UK. It's, it's downgraded. Americans go, right, it's downgraded. So uh, it's Let It Be With You. It was By this stage, it's top five in America dance. The video's on heavy rotation in the States. It's, everything's going according to plan. Boom, it wasn't there. The guy, the, the, the head of um, sales and distribution at EMI had gone on holiday and um, there'd been a, a mess up with the dates of the records going to stores. I mean, you know, I know it sounds really basic, but that's what happened. Once the record, once it's, once it's pulled from Radio 1 in those days, that was it. It was over. It never came back. You never got it back. I, you know, I'd struggled for the whole year. We released lots of singles, but radio, no, nah, it's not going to happen. Blue Sun's not happening. You know? So it was over. And also, uh, obviously, the eighties, it was, you know, music was changing and the society was changing. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if it was eighty seven, eighty eight. I used yeah. to go to Shum and the sort of the the yeah. rave I mean, culture I, was coming. Yeah. But I'm now not. I'm now. I've transformed into leather jacket and jeans. If you look at the second album. You know, it's not, it's live band. It's all live band, the second um, album. It's not so electronic. And um, even though the first one wasn't that electronic, but you know what I mean? It was, it was not relying on, it was brass. It was, it was rock guitar. It was much heavier. And um, so I'd moved, I'd developed. I mean, I was going to Shroom and all the clubs and that's where London was, you know, I was doing all the same thing. So I wasn't, you know, silly. No, it had gone wrong. And, it, you know, it's the end of the eighties and, you're just about to get there and you haven't got there. Now, a lot of bands that we know now did get there. They just, they just got there maybe a year earlier than me. They would, they, you know, if you think of all the bands that have survived the big ones, you know, um, uh, I mean, you know, the obvious ones, the eighties bands, but uh, I hadn't got there. And so the, the whole thing, you know, it just, everyone was very nice and we carried on, but you know, it was over. How uh, did you deal? Because, and, you know, this is taking a bit later, sort of to the mid nineties, yeah, when, yeah. when, when you know the, the end came, as it were. Yeah. I mean, it was a similar. That was a similar period with me. I'd come to Germany, run a TV channel, and then my career completely fell apart, and yeah. and and I was over. Um, and there was a process of the loss of fame, which was, even though I, you know, I was nowhere near mm -hmm. as successful as you, but I was recognisable at that point. And I remember that loss. Yeah. 
that yeah. loss of fame was quite painful in a way. It was like a loss that you go through in life. It was some sort of grief involved where you get used to it slowly in an acceptance and then you deal with it and then you move on. How was that for you? Well, I, I knew it long before everyone else. So, I mean, I, I was like, this is, this is not going according to plan and I couldn't get tours and I couldn't get, I did an American tour in 1988, small club tour, but I should have been doing something much bigger. Um, and then I was looking at the management and then there was some bad management advice. Um, and, you know, then I really, really fought to make a third album, which is, I think, a beautiful album um, that, you know, uh, BMG Arista didn't even bother with the, you know, the, I don't know why they bothered making it, but we made it and I released that. It's got a couple of great singles on it, but they, they didn't, you know, they, they didn't even bother. So, you know what? I thought that's it. You know, I mean, that's it because by the, by the time it's the nineties and I didn't like the nineties, the nineties were, you know, they weren't fooling anyone to me. They were, they were, you know, Britpop was really, yeah. Okay. I mean, I've just lived through the eighties. I'm, I'm not interested, you know? So, um, so uh, I thought it was best, I was, I've jumped ahead a bit, but I, I thought it was best rather than be groveling around. I'm still living in central London. I thought just keep quiet. I still chatted to all my friends who were in the music industry, but I kept, you know, I was, it was very humiliating. It's very annoying. It's very frustrating. It's, um, it's uh, oh, there's the guy that did imagination, you know, there's a lot of that. And um, I mean, what's interesting about that, I mean, that's what I used to get. It's like, oh, it's MTV, you know. And of course, to them, I'm the identifiable figure. And they mean that in a positive way. But yeah. to you, it's like a, a memory of what's gone. In a yeah, way. And I was so embarrassed. It is quite I, painful. It is very painful. It, it, but you can't say anything or do anything. You just got to smile sweetly and go, oh, yeah. yeah, right. You know, you just reminded me of the fact it's gone wrong, you know. And um Oh, I love that song, you know, oh, great. Or, you know, and uh, in America, oh, so what happened? A lot of what's gone wrong? What's happened? Well, what's gone wrong is real life has gone wrong. And, and you know, I chose show business. If you choose show business, you are, you're playing with fire, you know. And um, so, so um, you know, I, I scratched around. You know, I think I made, I made a single with, um, funny enough, I made a single with um, Matt and Biff, who, who, about a month before they started recording the Spice Girls. Um, so I did a, a, a cover, uh, a Korea song, Baby Let Me Love You, which is great. Actually, again, I hadn't heard that for 25 years. And then I thought, you know, this is, this is 1995. This is crazy. What am I doing? Who am I kidding? You know, you know, I'm not making any money. I've got to make, I've got to get on and go move on. So, so I kept quiet and let them all get on with it, you know. So then, you, I, so then you've had a long, you know, a long period after that. Um, and just a couple of years ago, which I think would have been just slightly pre-COVID, you made a decision to actually well, I didn't make a decision. shell. Someone called me up. I mean, oh, someone right. called me up. I mean, my kids didn't even know I was a singer. No one knew I was a singer. I mean, I mean, my friends knew I was literally some, but I, you know, the first thing happened about 10 years ago, I lost a lot of weight and looked a lot better because, you know, you just you get to 45, 50, and you know, it's like um. No, I got a phone call. I was on the beach in Croatia. I was actually in the water with someone rang. I said, oh, do you fancy doing um, Let's Rock next year? Um, you know, all 12 festivals. I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> they said, well, we'll send you a contract. Uh, I said, well, what do I have to do? Don't worry, it's in the contract. Okay, fine. That was it. And I did it. And um, that was one of the big moments in my life as well, going back on stage for the first time in 25, 30 years. That was how surprised um, were you with the reaction that you got when you went back on stage? I was completely surprised. I mean, the last gigs I did, you know, I mean, you know, there was a confrontation between band and audience. When you're a young band, it's a lot of like, <laughs> but um going on to an audience that actually knew all the words and liked you, and they weren't throwing things at you, or um, you know, they were uh, it was incredible. A great band as well, because you know, technically everything's so much better now. Um so I went on and I was completely shocked. It was a big moment in my life. And my kids were there like, that was nice. And, and but the big thing, Steve, and you'll know this because you've met everyone, right? And um, I haven't seen these people for 30 years. No one. I haven't seen any band for 30 years. And there was a lineup with 12 bands, all ages. You know, the ABCs, Evans, you know, Evans, uh, Nick Kershaw. I toured with Nick. You know, I mean, all people I'd known, you know, reasonably well. Some I'd known very well, Tony Hadley, whatever. And it was like, yesterday oh hi Neff. 
yeah, I was like, well, hang on, aren't you going to ask me where I've been for 30 years? Uh, you know, it was, there was, it was, um, it was like, it was like, the, it was like, I mean, it was like yesterday. Yeah, there's a loyalty, isn't there? And there's, yeah. I mean, I'm finding that with the interviews that I do, that yeah. because there's a commonality that we've all experienced yeah. something yeah. of the same in yeah. the people of that era, and particularly yeah. for you as musicians who have been out there and been successful, you've had yeah. very similar experiences along the way. None of them have stayed right up the top. They've all had a terrible time at some stage, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like you, they, like they you, know. Yeah, and they know what it's like to be at the top, and they know what it's like when it's taken away, yeah. and and that, and I think that's the beauty of it. That was lovely. It gives that, you more humanity to understand that. That was lovely, and that didn't exist forty years ago. Let me tell you, there was none of that backstage at Wembley with Queen on stage. Like you know, we were all competing, um, but there's no competing now. That's a very good point. There was no competing. Everyone was like, "Hi, how are you doing? All right, blah blah blah." You know, I mean, it was nice. Um, it's a very, very nice feeling to be around a comradeship. You know, we've all been through the same war together, uh, and uh, like old soldiers. <laughs> it was, um, yeah, it was great. It was very lovely, actually. And the people who run these, um, the Let's Rock, uh, I mean, they're the biggest festivals in the UK. I mean, the retro ticket is bigger than anything now because people in their forties and fifties plus can can afford to go. I mean, and. Um, it was just great. I mean, really nice, you know. No one pissed backstage. That's for a start. Uh, <laughs> none of that, you know. Come on, you're all backstage taking tons of coke and going shitless, aren't you? No, everyone's looking around. Everyone's like, you know, no, there's none of that happening. It's, excuse me, where's my? You know, uh, do, do I still need a hairbrush? You know, that's that was. A good thing. Um, no, it was um, very civilized indeed, and all family, and um, and I loved that, you know. Because, you know, we have lived through it. And any young band that thinks they've seen it all, yeah, right. You know, you try living in the 70s and 80s. You want to see what it's like? Um, so um, it was... I just want to ask you finally, because that going on stage and having that um, experience again and then seeing that the audience know all your songs and sing along and they're with you still, which is... ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You yeah. know, a really fantastic moment. Has it inspired you to write new songs and to actually think about let's let's take this to another level? What what will you do now? Well, all my interviews when I was doing the um the, the festivals was no, no, don't be ridiculous. I'm not doing that, you know. I'm and then I was rummaging through moving and we were rummaging through boxes, and I realized I did demo an entire album. Um in the mid nineties, early, you know, f uh, to do another album. So I have got some great, and I listened to songs, I thought, you know, because I was a songwriter, you know, and the songs sounded, I mean, now if I wrote a song, it'd be rubbish, but these songs I wrote 15, 20 years ago. And um, yeah, I have an album and it's fantastic, but I ain't doing it. <laughs> well, unless someone comes along and says, listen, I'm not going to go through what I've Enter in the party. If someone comes along and says, "Hey, I really want to work with you," and, ah, we'll do a couple of songs, um, you know. And um, I would like to do that one day, but I'm not sweating just to prove a point, you know. You know. But I'd like my, to do lots of love. My advice is, don't be proud. Just, just do it because you know. <laughs> if someone turns up, if someone turns up and says, "I'll do it. I'll pay for it," and whatever, and uh, yeah, then I would do it. But you know, I'm not going to go out like I did in the old days and go, "Come on, you can work with me." I know I can get people to work with me, but I don't want to. You know, we'll see what happens. I want to do live more live. 
uh, before everyone my my age keels over, you know, we're the next, you know, while the stones and all that lot are still going strong, um, there's hope. <laughs> that is such a brilliant note to end on. Neville, that's, it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up and um, nice. I'm really pleased that you're doing so well and, well and have such great stories to tell. And you're a little bit like me. You think back at the past, you talk about it, and then suddenly you think, oh, God, that happened. And then yeah. comes a new story. So thanks yeah. again. Good luck with the future. And really, your contribution has been immense in that era. And it was a pleasure for me to go back and to listen to the music again and just sort of take me back to, a, to another era. And that was fantastic in itself. Thank you so, so thank much. Thank you. made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.